You are now listening to Music Marketing Metaphysics Podcast Radio Show, presented by AdeptInitiates.com, dedicated to the expansion of consciousness and the truth seekers of all time. And now your host, NEXT. Transmitting the teachings from Los Angeles, California. I'm your host, NEXT, and this is Music Marketing Metaphysics Podcast Radio Show, presented by AdeptInitiates.com. This episode is brought to you by AncientEgyptMysterySchools.com. Immerse yourself in the hidden teachings of the ancient mystery traditions. For thousands of years, initiates have examined the meanings of sacred texts said to hold the secret path towards ascension. But how can we decipher these often enigmatic phrases and symbols? Join the line of ascended masters on a quest for deeper truths of our universe. Follow along as we trace the powerful evolution of humankind's most illuminating secrets. Begin to embark on your journey today and discover your divine rite of passage at ancientegyptmysteryschools.com. I'm joined in studio with Efren Arroyo, who is my co-host for today's episode. Now, this is the first episode, so to kick things off, we needed a very special guest. So it's only right that I invited a friend of mine and mentor of sorts, someone who I've actually personally been to Egypt with and learned a great deal from. Someone who, by the way, without even being there at Contact in the Desert this year, received a thunderous applause from the crowd after Graham Hancock took a moment out of his own lecture to show his respect and pay homage to today's guest. And Graham's certainly not the only one who pays homage to our guest. In fact, it's a lengthy list of popular authors and alternative researchers that cite our guest as an influence. He is the author of The Serpent in the Sky, The High Wisdom of Ancient Egypt, Traveler's Key to Ancient Egypt, and is now involved in a new book on near-death experience. Today, we have the great-granddaddy of them all, and perhaps only Schwaller as the great-great-granddaddy before him, the man who delivered a shock to archaeology in the 1990s when he and Boston University geologist Dr. Robert Schock revealed that the Great Sphinx of Egypt showed evidence of rainfall erosion. That could only mean that the Sphinx was carved during or before the rains that marked the transition of northern Africa in the last ice age to the present interglacial epoch, a transition that occurred in the millennia from 10,000 to 5,000 BC. Our guest is the legendary Magical Egypt tour guide, symbolist author, and in some circles considered a rogue Egyptologist, John Anthony West. John, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It is a pleasure to be on it. Now, John, something I think that many of us take to is your comical wit. But when it comes to this line of work, there is no joke about it. You're a straight shooter. Now, I've been to Egypt a number of times, but it wasn't until one of your trips that I was deeply affected. It was there in the field that I had the opportunity to be schooled by you where I begun to see Egypt through the eyes of a symbolist. You're going back to Egypt soon, but not for one of your usual trips. 
Could you give us some uh, details or tell us about what you'll be doing out there? I can hint at it, actually, because it's a non-disclosure agreement that I'm not supposed to um, let on what, what we're doing. It is research, basically, and it is research into some extremely interesting aspects of Egypt that have not been, really not been documented before. But that's about all I can say. And to the audience, all I can say is stay tuned because it will, in due course, be put before the public big time in a, in a very significant way. And I hope finally put an end to this stupidity that I've been putting up with for 30 years of evidence that is transparently clear to anyone smarter than Donald Trump, which is practically everyone. Well, John, maybe what we could do is yes. explore something that you can give us more detail on. Will yes. you, will you take our audience on a journey and guide them going back into time? How did a young John Anthony West view the world around him? And what was the series of events that led your interest into uh, exploring ancient Egypt and researching R.A. Schwaller de Lubitsch? Okay, well, I'll try to keep it as brief as possible because it's a long and complicated, and I like to think amusing stories. But put it this way, I was never one of these boy geniuses that anytime you open the internet nowadays, there's some six-year-old kid playing Beethoven on standing on his head playing the violin and eating an ice cream cone. I was never one of those. But what I was, was, I would say, psychologically precocious. And I knew at the age of 13 or so, from mitzvah time, I knew that I'd been born into a lunatic asylum and that everybody around me was either deluding themselves or lying or both. And they called it progress. By the time I was 19, I knew what I wanted to do, which was to be a writer. I had no, absolutely no thought of being a scholar. I wanted to be a writer basically a satirist, and I wanted to be the little boy who says the emperor has no clothes. Anyway, more long stories. Fast forward. Took a while to get published. That was 1957. First short story was published. I was wildly in love with a woman who, thank God, wouldn't have me. And I said, the hell with this. I'm quitting my advertising job, and I'm going back to Europe, where I'd been for a year and a half in the army, found my way to Ibiza. Then I, I, I put my roots down there and stayed there actually for almost nine years. So then I figured I'd published my uh, my guidebook to lots of acclaim, even even from the academics a little bit. They acknowledged that I'd done a good job, and uh, I figured I could lead trips to Egypt and make a living finally. So I I started doing these trips, and in the course of me with my big mouth. One day, I popped into a friend of mine, a Dutch novelist called Jan Herratonder, excellent, excellent writer, spoke, I mean, pretty perfect English, but not literary English, and I used to, was helping him with translating his own stuff into, from Dutch into English. One day, I ran out of paper, so I went to Jan's house and said, Jan, you know, I know I'm not supposed to be here, but I'm run out of paper, lend me some paper, and I'm out of here. So we went back to get some paper where we had that stored, and I saw he had a big, long desk, kind of a refectory de desk. And on it were something he was doing. There were sort of pie charts or pieces of paper with circles in them cut into divisions like a pie. And when he came out, he said, um, I said, what, you know, Jan, what the hell are, that, what are you doing there? And he said, oh, you caught me. I don't tell people about this, but I'm actually an astrologer and I do charts of celebrities in Holland to make a few extra bucks. And I said, uh, well, astrologize, that's a bunch of rubbish, isn't it? And he looked me square in the eye and he said, you think I'm a fool? I said, no, you're a drunk, but you're not a fool. And so he said, I, I, he said, I'd been studying, he was a war hero, a resistance hero in the Second World War in Holland. He said, uh, 
um, I tell you there's something to it. So my next question, of course, was, would you do my horoscope? And he said, no, get stuff, do it yourself. And he handed me a bunch of books. And since anything is easier than writing, I started studying it and I became convinced there was something, something, something to it somehow or another. Anyway, I'm going to fast forward a lot now. Novel got published. I moved to from Mabisa to, to England because um, I was going with a, actually my first wife, now deceased, um, who was an actress. And she, in order to, for her to get work, she, she uh, you know, she had to be in England. There was no acting work on Ibiza. So I'd had enough of it. The place was getting completely grockled up. And my novel was published in England first. I got friendly with my with my editor, who was a Cambridge-trained mathematician turned publisher. And we were having a, a jar in a pub one day, as they say. And the subject of astrology came up. And he said, oh, that's a bunch of codswallop. And I said, well, as a matter of fact, it's something I know rather a lot about. And I tell you, it isn't. And you could put together a case, enough in some direct evidence, but a lot of indirect evidence, that there is a definite correlation, a demonstrable, provable correlation between events in the heavens and, you know, psychological types. And he said, well, that, that would interest me. And I brought him in some documentation. He said, well, I don't necessarily believe it myself, but that, would you do a book on this? And my standard answer to a question like that is basically, pay me some money and I'll do some a book about anything, which isn't quite true, actually, but it's, it's a good line. And uh, suddenly there I had to become a scholar. And in doing that work, and then I also, one of the main reasons for going to England was that I also got introduced by some people in, on a visa who had been in the Gurdjieff work. One of them was feeding me Gurdjieff books, and that really interested me. I mean, that more than the astrology. Gurdjieff was the only person I'd ever encountered posthumously that was as contemptuous of Western civilization as I was. But there was a big difference. He knew how to live in it, and I didn't. Not very well, anyway. So I went to London. One of the main reasons for going to London was to get involved in a Gurdjieff group. And so I did. And then now I had to write this book on astrology and do scholarship, which I'd never, not really done. I'd had the brief introduction to scholarship, but that will take us too, too far off the autobiographical track. And somebody in my Gurdjieff group, knowing that I was doing the book on astrology and that I was looking into the history of astrology, told me about a book called uh, The Theory of uh, Celestial Influence. This was by a Gurdjieff follower called Rodney Collin. I, I, I got that. And that was, I mean, actually, that was what led me into the, into the scholarship on astrology. But then Someone in my crew told me, knowing I was doing this book, that I should go to Watkins, the only esoteric bookshops in England at that time, and look for a book called Herbach by a woman called Isha Schwaller de Lubitsch. That was my introduction to Schwaller. This was not a great novel, but she kept referring to a book called The Temple de Lum, The Temple of Man, by um, her husband, R.A. Schwaller de Lubitsch. Her book was the story of a, it was called Herbach Disciple. Though it was a lousy novel, the picture of Egypt that came out of it was absolutely fascinating and correlated very clearly and closely to what Gurdjieff said about Egypt. But it, it, was, it was clear that Schwaller was dealing with scholarship and Gurdjieff and it was basically uh, on a take-it-or-leave-it basis. And Gurdjieff was an absolutely fascinating character. I'm still involved in the, in the work, in the Gurdjieff work, and I think if I hadn't been, I'd have... And I'd have self-destructed long ago. I, I finally went to the library, the British Museum, 
And sure enough, they had a copy of it in French, hadn't been translated. And I basically sat down, cut the pages of French books. You had to cut the pages. It was sort of a ritual, almost, if they were new. It had been there, been the book, been, been there for 10 years, but nobody had ever taken it out and cut the pages. And I basically sat down for a year with the dictionary by my side. I had a little bit of entry-level French. And by the time I got done, my, my reading French was pretty good. So I, I just couldn't put the book down, even though it symbolist Egypt didn't fit that much. But I, I just couldn't resist putting a, a chapter in because Schroller wasn't available in English. Um, the Temple of Man is the, is the single biggest scholarly achievement in the history of, of West, Western philosophy or spiritual philosophy. Schroller is not for the many. It's more than an acquired taste. It's, you need a certain kind of mindset or heart set even. To, to plumb through plot for Schroller. And so I had a chapter in the astrology book and then publishers came to me and said, would you, would you do a book on Schroller? He sounds really interesting. And my answer, of course, as usual was, yeah, sure, I will um, you know, pay me some money. So they did a little bit. That kind of made Schroller accessible to, certainly not to everyone, it's not bedtime reading, but at least a lot more accessible than Schroller. And in doing that research, there was a single line, not in the, not in the, uh, in the Temple of Man, but in another one of his books now published called Sacred Science, The King of the Pharaonic Theocracy, in which he's talking about the uh, chronology of Egypt, in which the Egyptians absolutely were on record of saying that their civilization started many, many, many thousands of years earlier. And the academics, who I fondly refer to most of the time as quackademics, rather than take the Egyptians at their word, insist that they know more about ancient Egyptian history than the people who were living there at the time in dynastic Egypt. So Schaller had a long chapter in the sacred science book about the age of Egypt, but it was mostly a, a scholarly argument based upon late Greco-Roman texts of the travelers who were there and who talked to the priests who insisted that Egypt went back much further. And there were at least two documents, one stone tablet called the Palermo Stone, which talks about these shadowy rains going thousands and thousands and thousands of years before the rise of dynastic Egypt, which is about 3200 or so BC, in those days to be certain. And then another thousands of years reign of, I mean, but the, the first rulers were, were gods themselves, were, as what I take to be fully realized, divinized human beings, Jesus figures effectively. Then following them, some another set of semi-divine rulers called the Shemsu Hor, which means the companions or the followers of Horus. And that went for more and more thousands of years. And of course, these things are dismissed out of hand by the quackademics, but a scholarly argument is just a scholarly argument. It's not science. You can't prove it. And there are better and worse interpretations, and that's the best you can do. But at the very end, there's one line where he said, and of course, the Great Sphinx of Giza shows unmistakable signs of aquatic erosion, of water weathering. And I, that hit me. That was a, a revelation. That was my little epiphany of, you know, on, on Schwaller. Because John, I, hmm? you're, you're a scholarly approach to research on Schwaller is admirable. And knowing this story here about your past, it's no wonder why your revolutionary book, Serpent in the Sky, The High Wisdom of uh, Ancient Egypt, challenges all that's been accepted as dogma concerning ancient Egypt. And you're involved with a new book, The Dead Saints Chronicles. But before we reveal that, yeah. why don't we go a bit deeper into Schwaller? Because 
okay. audience here at Adept Initiates, you know, this is really the type of content they like to hear about. So we know that Schwaller's father was a chemist or a scientist. We know at the age of 16, he studied Pythagorean numbers, and uh, he's even lectured for the Theosophical Society. So he was very much involved with the Hermetic tradition that percolated down from Egypt to the Renaissance, from the Renaissance on to him. It was at that time that, you know, I guess around the turn, it was around the turn of the 19th century when you had these major artistic and literary figures involved in the Golden Dawn, such as Bram Stoker, who wrote Dracula. But in France, there was a real alchemical revival happening. All these folks who really knew how to do alchemy. It's believed that Schwaller was a practicing alchemist. Could you speak a bit to that? Also let us know why Schwaller went to Luxor, what he found there, and what was happening in Egypt at that time, you know, in terms of archaeology. Yeah, well, he was a practicing alchemist. I mean, I was working with his stepdaughter writing The Serpent, living, she lived in the south of France, and he had Schwaller's workshop there. She claimed that he was able to reproduce, which nobody's ever been able to do, the stained glass that is featured in Chartres and Bourges and the great Gothic cathedrals, the secret of which later got lost. And I saw that glass, but I'm not an expert in glass. So it looked to me like what you see when you go to Chateau Bourg or one of those Gothic cathedrals. So I'm, I'm in no position to verify it, but it sure looked for real. Yes, there was a, there was a particularly an alchemical revival in France. Good book published called, did you read it? Sounds as though you did. Falconelli uh, and the Alchemical Revival. Falcon, Falconelli and the Alchemical Revival. That gave me a lot of information on Schwaller that I never knew of his earlier years. Um, I have this wrong in The Serpent because I thought he went just on a holiday to Egypt, but in fact, he he did go to, as in mind, trying to find out, I mean, he had a, a, a simple enough quest initially. The alchemists and the hermeticists, the sages of the Renaissance, um, all of those great figures who were credited with starting modern science were not really interested in what is now called modern science. They'd probably be horrified by it, but they were, they were looking for, uh, I mean, they believed that the fount of their wisdom of the alchemy and the magic and the astrology and the number symbolism and all of these, all of these disciplines that are associated with the hermetic tradition began in Egypt, as everybody always believed. But Schwaller, I mean, modern scholars don't believe that. They think the Renaissance people, Galileo and Kepler and all of these guys, sort of cooked it up on their own with no reference to Egypt. This is part of another big, long story because, see, Egypt, Egyptology, it's changing slowly, like moves about as quickly as Pluto in orbit. But recently, just the last four or five years, there are some signs that some Egyptologists are beginning to wake up somehow or another. There's some stuff coming out every, every now and again in scholarly journals and, you know, not really, wouldn't make sense to most of the, you know, the public that is not intimately involved in this, but it is starting to change. Egyptology represents a, a main element of what I like to call the Church of Progress, which is exactly the antithesis of civilization. What we call progress is shiny barbarism. And you know this now from being to Egypt. Right. You come back understanding the difference between progress and civilization. I mean, this is a big lesson, and it's one of the re main reasons that I keep doing my trips, because people do get blown out by it, and they come back. I often start a lecture, I didn't start this talk with it, but that Egypt is like sex. That gets everybody's attention, the magic three-letter word. But then, of course, why is Egypt like sex? Well, because you can read books, you can read all about it, and that provides information of a sort. You look at pictures, that provides information of another sort. But until until you actually experience it, you do not and cannot understand it. You just plain can. A couple of weeks in Egypt, then you understand it. You've got it in your gut.
So Schweller went to Egypt, mainly looking to see if he could prove that the Egyptians knew and had the golden section, you know, the mathematical proportion called, called phi, the magic number. He quickly found he was very lucky because the French Archaeological Commission was there surveying the Temple of Luxor. And when he went into the Temple of Luxor, this was his epiphany as well. What mystics call a revelation and artists call an inspiration, academics and scientists call a hypothesis formation in order to make the whole magical moment of epiphanies sound as boring as possible. It can't really be really interesting because if it's really interesting, then it can't be science. Anyway, Schwaller had this revelation that the Temple of Luxor was an exercise in harmony and proportion, which is supposedly a Greek invention. So he started studying, and he was lucky because the French Archaeological or Egyptological Commission would just then had their surveyors surveying the temple down to the millimeter. So Schwaller could work with absolutely exact proportions and measures of the temple, which you can't do for most of the other temples. They've been surveyed, but not to the millimeter, not with that kind of attention. He soon realized that not only did the Egyptians have the golden section and the Fibonacci series and the harmonic scale and all of these things, but they were employed within this extraordinary structure. These, by the way, harmony and these things are supposedly invented by the Greeks, supposedly a Greek invention. And here, Trawler was showing that they knew about this when the Temple of Luxor was built, which is a thousand years, basically, before uh, the golden age of Greece. And if they had it then, Almost certainly, it was there in Egypt at the very beginning. So Schwaller, Schwaller stayed there in, in Luxor through the Second World War. He got there in 37. He left in 52, just before the Nasser, the Nasser Revolution, and had put together this whole magisterial corpus, which he called the Temple of Man, because the temple itself, structured, is built upon a plan that exactly mirrors the proportions of the male human body of the of the male of the male the male skeleton men and women have different proportions there but they'll average out at a certain and give you a certain figure of proportion and if you take a hundred women again they all differ individually now an average and you'll get a different set of proportions for the for the female body and then Schwaller showed that that this temple enshrined the cosmic laws as it were that pertain as above so below it was the proof of the sacred science that allowed Egypt and other civilizations as well. Egypt is the most important of them, not necessarily because they knew more, but because there's so much of it left. I mean, you can't you go to India and China or Mesoamerica. There are wonderful things, but not much of it is as old as ancient Egypt, particularly you get back to the Old Kingdom, 3000 B.C., 2200 B.C. So, so it's, it, it's, well, it's a demonstration of the sacred science underlying these miraculous temples and all of the sculpture and the and the, and the painting and all the rest of it that he put out his work the, the, the temple de Lamed came out in 57 and it was you know basically ignored and then of course the there it was in the serpent though because i was really struck by schwaller's line about the antiquity of the sphinx that it was had been water weathered so i'm not a geologist but i spent a lot of months reading books on geology and concluded that Schroller had to be right. But I realized that actually symbolist Egypt was definitely not for everybody, just as Gurdjieff isn't for everybody. But the antiquity of the Sphinx, the, the, the idea that very ancient civilization, of course, as soon as you say that, you, you're, you're confronted by the A word, Atlantis, 
and then of course no matter what you do the uh, the academics will have will have no truck with it although even that is starting to break down a bit in the last couple of years so i developed on my own the notion that the great sphinx had been wet, weathered by water which would have put it back to at least 10000 bc and maybe a lot earlier because oh, i didn't mention this when in the palermo stone and the the other document is a very fragmentary papyrus called the turin papyrus because it's in Turin. if you put together the regnal years of these divine and then subsequently shemsu or semi divine rulers you come up with something like 34 or 36000 years which of course is unthinkable according to the timeline that prevails in in history and egyptology and so on so but and that was something that was easily graspable you know by the general populace actually at one point i mean the serpent came out nobody paid any attention to it much but um one person who did pay attention to it was a guy who taught who taught, was teaching english at boston university he'd been teaching at the american university of cairo in the middle 80s or so and he was familiar with with my book with serpents in the sky and very interested in it he was actually a practicing buddhist i think or a sufi i think anyway uh named robert eddy who i've lost track of and anyhow we were friendly we got friendly and he was over for for a dinner one day and he was talking about trawler and you know the fact that nobody was paying much attention to serpents in the sky and he said you know is there anything that I can do in my position as an academic to you know help the cause and without you I didn't even have to think about it I said yeah um open minded geologists specifically who will look into uh, the sphinx theory and I laughed and he said what are you laughing at and I said well I said you know I have enough experience now dealing with scientists and academics I mean the only thing finding an open minded scientist is about as easy as finding a fundamentalist christian who loves his enemies and even rare as a, a a visionary billionaire with principles and a conscience so he he laughed and he said well hold on a minute hold on there's a young guy at my university a geologist very you know highly credentialed phd yale he could be open to it this is more long story but chaka this is robert chaka of course he initially didn't want to have anything to do with it I, I didn't even he my pal Eddie wouldn't tell me his name he didn't want his name known and it was a good reason for it he, he was up for tenure and of course if if your peers know that you're willing to look into atlantis the, the dreaded a word goodbye tenure so i could appreciate it nevertheless the evidence is the evidence and that is one of the things as i said i can divulge any any details whatsoever other than that we're going over there myself and Shock and my son who's the manager and Shock's wife and so we're going over there now to um on this investigation and that's about all I can say about that anyway what else that's that's that takes us up to the present pretty much with a lot of the interesting details um and funny details actually left out but that will we find its way into something or another subsequently chuck and i are planning on a book about the whole sphinx theory and uh is that get... dancing down the bridge of sarah yeah that's dancing down the bridge of sarah yes and that is sirah. the bridge of sarah is a sufi image that is 
Well, you will understand this very well. And the subtitle is uh, A Scientist and a Scholar Fend Off the Airbrushed Unicorns and Take on the Paradigm Police. And the, the Bridge of Siraj described, it's a Sufi image. It's the bridge you have to cross in order to get to the truth. And it's described as narrow as the rage's edge. And on one side is the chasm of credulity. And on the other, the abyss of skepticism. So this is the real problem. It really is a narrow edge. And it isn't straight like a razor either. It winds all over the place. On one side are the airbrushed unicorns. Those are the Sichininis and the alien abductionists, not alien abductionists, but the ones who think that aliens built the pyramid. Ancient astronauts and all of this baloney. I'm not even against ancient astronauts. It's that there's no evidence for it. That's all. Period. There's no evidence. So you can believe whatever you want. But the fact that we can't explain how they did these amazing structures does not mean that aliens done it at all. It means to me anyway that people a lot more advanced than ourselves were able to do this somehow or another. But this is a, this is a big open question still. It's really, it's really amazing that, as you said before, through uh, Schwaller, it's now possible to understand, you know, what we're looking at when we visit these places like Luxor. You know, right. the next episode of my ongoing series, Ancient Egypt Mystery Schools, we get a bit into Johann Wolfgang von Goethe's concept of frozen music, and yeah. um, you know, the great mystic Urgif. Uh, he he said that contemporary art was subjective and affected us only subjectively, right? So. If it's created out of a subjective state, it'll trigger you however it triggers you. But right. he had also said that there was such a thing as objective art. And he had said that objective art wouldn't matter what culture you came from, what language you spoke, what experiences you had. If you were in the presence of objective art, it would affect your consciousness in a very precise and specific way. And such art would depend on a correct understanding of cosmic laws applied through mathematical precision and understanding a harmony. Is that what we're experiencing when we see Luxor and some of these sacred sites in Egypt, John? Yes, that's absolutely what we're experiencing, except to just add a bit of a, not exactly a caveat to Gurdjieff's description, even though it is objective and it affects us to a certain extent in, in the same way, it still has to filter through our consciousness. So as you know from experience, um, I mean, some people, for example, take the Temple of Dendra, see it as dark and gloomy. I mean, magical. Everything's magical. But some things are because they, they filter through our own personal acculturation. We take as negative and somebody else sees them as absolutely life transforming. Yes, it is objective. And yes, it's stone music, as Goethe put it. Or that shouldn't be taken as a poetic metaphor. It's literally the case. In other words, the, the harmonies and proportions that make up the, the temples are the same harmonies and proportions that make up music. But there's a big difference. I mean, between a, there is objective music, um, mostly from the East, or there are great geniuses who, uh, you know, who are plugged into it but not able to transmit it. Bach and Beethoven and Monteverdi um, are three that come to mind and Handel to a certain extent. But the, the great classical music, uh, composers are plugged in. They're definitely plugged in, but they, they couldn't transmit it to anyone. The, this, this, the great scientists, the, the, the architects of, of Luxor and 
and uh, you know, and Karnak and all of the other temples of Egypt, Darabakari, Hatshepsut's great temple, they they would know the laws, but just because you know the laws doesn't mean that you can produce a masterpiece. And modern architects have some of the laws, the golden section of Fibonacci series, but, but none of them have produced the Temple of Luxor yet. Though some of them seem to get close. Well, you were at contact in the desert. The little cabins where the speakers were, where I was, um, were built by Frank Lloyd Wright. And, yeah. which are, and they're very, very beautiful. But like most of Frank Lloyd Wright's architecture, they don't work. They, they're not very comfortable. They don't function the way that they're supposed to. The temples of Egypt function the way they're supposed to. So, But still, there's, there's a lot to be learned from that architecture and the study of that architecture and to bring it into, I mean, there's, there's now enough knowledge out there about the sacred science so that if there are enough people and there were some money and we could start we could start planting the seeds for a civilization worthy of the name, which we don't have. I mean, look, we just look what's going on in politics. You've got a monster on the one hand and a vampire on the other, and one of them is going to be president. Um, it's a, no, no sacred architecture is going to come out of that or out of anything modern, really, unless the, the people who take an interest in this, and even though it's a broad subject, you know, there's... You know, as I said, a couple of hundred million people saw Mystery of the Sphinx, but, you know, no, nobody's getting together and putting the funding together to do, you know, to, to, to build a, a sacred structure. Though so there are a few people who have done that, you know, privately. There, there are some quite magical things around if you know where to find them and you know what to look for. Well, you know, John, when visiting some of these sacred structures, right, we visit some of these places and we notice some things are missing, like, for example, the obelisk. Do you think, could the obelisks have been giant stone tuning forks? Yeah, that's that's the John theory. And the reason I think that is that Lucy Lamy, that's Charlotte's stepdaughter, who's living in the south of France, asked me if I would, you know, do some research to find out, to get the exact dimensions and proportions of those obelisks. There are no two of them at all. There should be. All the New Kingdom and later temples, all of them had these huge stones, they look like Washington. Washington Monument is a fake obelisk because it's built of pieces. It's not a single block of stone. All the others are single blocks of stone. What she was looking for was to see if, if these obelisks, which are all different sizes, they're all the same shape, but they're all different sizes, if they were exact fractions of the latitude that the temple that they were in front of was. So in other words, one latitude would be for Luxor and another latitude would be for another temple with Derobachari. You know, they're most more or less the same, but other temples and they all had these obelisks in front of them. So I, I did the best I could and sent her some the data. And then she found that they were exact fractions. I forget exactly what they were, but each, I mean, the fractions differed, but they were, you know, they weren't like one 2,470th of a degree of latitude, of that particular latitude, they were, you know, an even number of the one five thousandth or one twenty-five thousandth or something of that nature. And they, of course, they look like tuning forks. And then I'm doing my first trip, we're doing my research. Somebody showed me, you know, there's a broken obelisk on the ground in Karnak Temple. And somebody, one of the guides I had working with me, showed me that if you, with your, the flat of your fist, you hit the end of the pointy end of the obelisk, 
it rings like a bell. I mean, you can hear it, you know, 10 feet away. And then I suddenly thought, gee, the earth, you know, it's not just a solid piece of rock hurtling around. It's full of resonances and magnetism and all the rest of it. And if you have these two things in front of it, and none of them have two anymore, but you would, you would literally have what looked like tuning forks. And they would be tuning forks because when the temples were complete, certain of the courts were open, but also a lot of it was covered. And if you see that temple as a giant, literal stone instrument, the obelisks functioning as, as tuning forks would be amplifying the earth frequencies, which are not, which are not um, audible. But just because they're not audible doesn't mean they're not effective. As they, I mean, there are these experiments that they've done on super, I forget what they're called, super low SL, super low frequencies or something. And they were experimenting with these things. And a lot of the experimenters died because those frequencies were tearing apart their inner organs. In other words, if you're a priest working in those temples, doing your various elaborate ceremonies and rituals and so on, and you're the natural frequencies of that stone music are being amplified by the tuning forks in front of the temple you know you're 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 enhancing your own let's say your own inner development and that actually you know they're always busy trying to get stuff back I and mean, zahi was had you know was in full power he was trying to get back the rosetta stone well, who needs you don't need the rosetta stone it has no artistic value that copy that they have in the Cairo Museum is just just as good. But then he was trying to get back Nefertiti, which the Germans stole and have in the Berlin Museum, and they really did steal it. Taking things from Egypt was perfectly legal up until quite recently. I mean, the, the deal was that half of what the research team found they could keep and bring back to Leiden or Amsterdam or Berlin or wherever they came from, and the other half went to Cairo to the Department of Antiquities. Then when they discovered in 22 Tutankhamun, they reneged on that deal and said, no, 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 this is the only royal tomb that we've ever found intact. We're going to keep all of it. And I don't blame them for that. But poor old Carter, Howard Carter, had excavated there for seven years without finding anything. Mm. And then suddenly he hit, he hit pay dirt and they wouldn't let him keep any of it. Or, you know, give it to whoever he would have given it to in, in England or Scotland or where what Zahi should have been doing if he wanted to really go down in history is uh, somebody doing something really significant. Getting back to Bust of Nefertiti would be nice, but there are plenty of other gorgeous busts that they have there, you know, statues. <clears throat> but to be able to put the, 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 the obelisks back in place so that they were in their original position... That would be interesting because now the technology is such that you probably could actually test for such things and see what what they were doing if they were really functioning as as tuning forks and if it made a difference to to the temple to whatever kind of <clears throat> subsonic frequencies they, they could measure, which they probably can do now. Maybe somebody with enough money somewhere along the line, you know, get attracted by this idea, could go to the Department of antiquities and you know insist that somebody give their obelisk back i can't imagine the french and the germans or the americans doing that willingly but anyway it's a thought so. certainly a great one john my co-host efren he's a, a journalist for our blog here and very much in ancient egypt i'm sure he has a question for you about schwaller yes sure uh so thanks again for being with us sir it's an absolute honor and pleasure 
What would uh, be a Schwaller book or material you would recommend to someone who is getting familiar with the Symbolist School of Thought, besides the two already mentioned, perhaps an obscure or underappreciated work of his? Well, actually, probably the best introduction is, is really my own Serpent in the Sky, because it's written by a writer. You see, the problem with Schwaller and many great, great original minds is that they're not necessarily great communicators. So Schwaller is very difficult. And, and sort of going into trying to read the Temple of Man without a fair amount of preparation is a bit like taking your first driving lesson in a Ferrari. It's, it's, it's not easy, but some of the, the there was sort of a, a shortened, almost like a trailer for um, the Temple of Man called the Temple in Man, um, which is relatively manageable. And that's in print and around. And then the book I was talking about before, um, uh, the Sacred Science, the King of the Pharaonic um, uh, Theocracy, and another one called The Egyptian Miracle. All of them are translated and very well translated, and they're pretty good introductions to it. I mean, between between The Serpent and a couple of those books, and then nowadays, of course, you just Google up Schwaller, and you look at what's interesting, or you go to my website and... Uh, Look for the book list on where the, where the trips are are, uh, are are advertised, and there's a long reading list with a section of Schwaller and Schwaller related books related to the sacred science. And John, your website for our audience is yeah, website is jawest.net or .com. Now you're involved with a new book. It's not about Egypt, but it's something Egyptians may have spent a lifetime preparing for death and near-death experiences. Could you tell us a bit about the Dead Saints Chronicles, your role with the book, and yeah. how you came to get involved with the project? Yeah, I'd love to. The full title is The Dead Saints Chronicles, A Zen Journey Through the Christian Afterlife. And it's written, uh, it was written by a very good friend of mine uh, named David Solomon. And David, I know for years, he was on an early trip of mine. He was the adopted son of a very charismatic and interesting preacher um, called Paul Solomon. He was the adopted son, David. And I knew him as a young man that came to Egypt with me early in the 90s. And then Paul died pretty early, actually, in his 50s. And David had to go out into the world and make a living and went into business and found he was quite good at it. He made a fair amount of money, a few million bucks. And it was he who financed our, he came back to Egypt with me on another trip, and he financed the trip that Chuck and I took to study Gobekli Tepe back in, I'm not sure if it was 2010, it was about something like that. And anyway, David, meanwhile, when I first knew him, he was a, he was assembling, he was a, really, he was a scholar who was not trained or anything like that, but he was one, who was collecting evidence, looking to, he was a Christian. Um, he was a pastor, but a real one. <laughs> he did the work. And he was looking to, for, for evidence of looking into geology and other, other sciences of the past, looking for evidence that would corroborate certain of the, of the aspects of the Bible that seemed to reference lost civilizations without ever using the A word and so on. Anyway, he was collecting a lot of evidence for that. And then when I lost track of him and, you know, we, we didn't communicate for years and years. And then he came back and he had he put that on the side. That probably in part because a lot of work's been done 
on that by Shock and by other people, very, very solid work on the kinds of catastrophes that were responsible for destroying what we think is not Atlantis within quotes, but we're in the middle of the ocean, but a, a global civilization that antedated, you know, the Sphinx Age, whatever that is, the great, I mean, it presupposes a great civilization to build the Sphinx and the temple alongside it. Anyway, he now was focusing on, he was collecting material on near-death experiences, which are now, you know, pretty well known. But David, <clears throat> nobody has ever, some of the books on near-death experiences have been have been huge bestsellers. But, and the, the quackademics, of course, and debunkers are trying to explain the material away as sort of fantasies of the dying brain. But in fact, when you go into, and then there are a few books that put it all together, but they all have a, a bit of an agenda one way or another, a religious agenda or a philosophical agenda. And there was, there was no book that actually formalized the study of these things and, and collected enough of them <clears throat> so that they would, so that they could be used, as used as really, really, truly what they are as evidence of use the religious word, although I don't like to use it because it brings up all sorts of images for all sorts of people that are, and the different images. But basically, it's, it's, it's proof of a celestial realm that is not ordinarily available to us, but that has been explored over the, over the centuries by the great mystics of, of all time, um, near-death experiences, except they didn't have to have near-death experience in order to have that experience. Drugs can do it sometimes. But now there's this big literature, huge literature, on first-hand accounts of people who've been through an NDE. And the reason for that, you could argue, why haven't people talked about this before? Well, they have. The saints have. The, the great spiritual writings of, of the millennia talk about it. But the difference is now, and these experiences are by, you know, Tom, Dick, and Harry, by ordinary citizens who, some of them not religious at all, some of them outright atheists. And something happens, and uh, they live to tell the tale. But the reason for that, it's a very simple reason. Um, medicine, crisis medicine in particular, has advanced to such an extent that people who go into a cardiac arrest or almost drown, or, you know, all kinds of things, who otherwise would never survive, can now be brought back. And out of those who are brought back, a substantial number, not all of them, it's still relatively uncommon, but enough of them, quite a lot of them, have these experiences. And these experiences correspond to each other. They're, each of it is, each of them are individual. And yet, when you put them all together, not exactly like taking an average, as I said before, with you know, the... the dimensions, the proportions of the male frame. You put 100 guys' me measurements together and you'll get a kind of an average that doesn't represent each of them, but it tells you what the average is, which is different from the same study carried out on 100 different women. So David was doing this sort of work and putting it all together, and he was telling me about it. And we were, of course, we're good friends, particularly when, you know, after he, he financed our, our uh, trip to Gobekli Tepe to Turkey. And I was saying, you know, David, this is really very interesting work. You should do a book. And he said, no, he said, I'm not a writer. And, you know, I'm just doing this. It's sort of, he used the word hobby for it. But 
it was pretty impressive. And anyway, then I think it was in, in 2013, uh, he started getting dizzy. And he's, as I said, he was an interesting, an in- interesting man. He was a, he was a preacher. He, you know, he had a very unconventional uh, church and a following, but he was also his first wife. Um, was Japanese, and he spent quite a lot of time in Japan, actually studying Tai Chi, and was a pretty advanced practitioner of Tai Chi, and studying a lot of bonsai. He was he was a bonsai master. You don't find many preachers around, particularly in southern states, who do bonsai. Anyway, that was a, an interesting background. And then, and he spent a bunch of money because he made, as I said, he was quite successful. Spent a lot of money putting in a Japanese garden. At his, he had some acres, acres five, seven acres, something like that, in Washington, state of Washington. And he was doing it, you know, these wonderful gardens and doing lots of research on NDEs. And then he started losing his balance. And he thought at first he kind of ignored it, but then he stopped ignoring it and went to the doctor and they were a bit puzzled. And enough tests um, finally ascertained that he had a glioma, as it's called, glioblastoma. But anyway, that's a it's a brain cancer with a hundred percent fatality rate. I mean, no one has ever got better from that. I mean, average life expectancy once you've been diagnosed with stage four is about fourteen months, something like that. Ted Kennedy died of a, a glioma, and so this was a death sentence. David was, I mean, really a remarkable man because he. I'd been telling him, urging him to do this, to put all of this research into a book because I felt that this was unique among the considerable number of books devoted to the near-death experience because by doing it the way that he was doing it, it was for anybody with a functioning brain and even more important, a functioning emotional center, this was commanding evidence. You see, the quackademics have a rule. It's not science unless you can measure it, repeat it, and make predictions from it. Well, of course, this leaves values out entirely, which is what they're basically trying to do. They're trying to prove they call themselves rational and that all of all of science is based upon reason. It isn't, actually. It's the rationalization of their own inner emptiness. So one of the things that doesn't count allows them to ignore ESP and reincarnation and all sorts of things of that nature that allows them to do that is that individual accounts, personal experience doesn't count. I mean, would you buy a cookbook by someone who's never fried an egg. So these nitwits are out trying to debunk this whole thing. But when they're all put together, not only do the accounts reflect each other, but there's a sort of a hierarchy of such experiences, some of them much more profound than others, but they constitute categories of near-death experience. The book is effectively, and one of the nice things about it is that, and then David was not a writer, so he asked me if I'd, if I'd edit it for him, which I did. You know, I'm a writer for 60 years, so it adds a certain, let's say, literary quality to it that it might not otherwise have had. My own conviction is that no civilization is even in principle worthy of being a civilization unless it has a spiritual basis to it. And this leads us into our five cowboys of Apocalypse 2.0, but we'll leave that aside for the moment. But what David had produced, and I edited it and then contributed a certain amount to it, was a, a single book that that's so, so potent. And you see, he was using himself as his own experiment because he was dying as he was doing all of the, the writing and the final research for this. And he was as good as his word. I mean, the, the near-death experience, one thing that everybody who has the near-death experience has in common is that they conquer the fear. They no longer have a fear of death. When you read, or oh, this is why David 
David calls it the Dead Saints Chronicles, because that's what the saint of all everywhere, the rishis and the yogis and the Zen masters and the Sufis, all of those who've attained high levels of initiation, you might say, in their respective traditions, has that as a basis. They no longer fear death. And this is why David calls them the Dead Saints, because these are everybody, Tom, Dick, and Harry, they're carpenters, they're mechanics, they're a few even committed atheists who have this experience and come back no longer as atheists. And one of the huge advantages of this, it's not sacred science, you know, it's not its not a sacred geometry or a sacred philosophy even. Personal experience in aggregate as a demonstration, I mean, a very powerful, moving demonstration, you know, that there's a higher realm. Quoting one of America's great philosophers, Yogi Berra, who said, it ain't over till it's over. The, the Dead Saints Chronicles proves that it ain't over till it's over, but it ain't over then either, because there is a realm beyond which the, the mystics of all the ages and the great religious teachers have always taught. Not everybody can read The Serpent, and very few can read Schwaller. Even fewer, perhaps, can read Gurdjieff. The traditional religions, they're fine. I mean, most of them are hopelessly corrupt, but there are. I've been to monasteries, one in Egypt, where, you know, the priests are really doing their work. And I've been to other places where, you know, there are Indian Hindu teachers and Zen teachers and so on. There are a few around who are really doing it, but they're not. Those traditions are not designed for the lunatic asylum of the 20th century. The only one that's actually designed for that is Gurdjieff, but that's, again, not for everybody. But the Dead Saints Chronicles is a book that everybody can read and come out of with a sense of, really, a sense a sense of purpose and, and enough knowledge so that when somebody starts talking about, oh, well, it's just a brain malfunction or something like that, they can either say, you don't know what you're talking about. In fact, you're full of shit and uh, you've never experienced these things and these thousands of people have. And so it is, it's a very positive work. And David, unlike me, is not, he, he doesn't like taking on the quackademics. He wasn't a satirist. So there's no anger in David. There is plenty with me. But this is this is really a seriously important book. And you can get it at, you go to Amazon, they have it. You can get it direct from me, actually. Um, I'll even sign it. And so David, he lived just long enough to get the book out. And when he found out he had this terrible thing, this death sentence hanging over his head, and he prayed, and what he prayed for was enough time to finish the book and to see his daughter graduate from high school. And he made it in terms of getting the book out. He died just a couple of weeks before daughter graduated from the high school. But he was, you know, he saw it as a, as a sign from God to, to let him get the book finished. And it took much longer than um, anticipated, but we did. Anybody interested who is at all literate, write a review because those things are important. And a book like this, self-published, so it's not going to get a lot of press unless it starts selling. To, it's crucial to log into Amazon and write a review on right. the Dead Saints Chronicles a Zen Journey Through the Christian Afterlife by David Solomon and John Anthony West. And I believe it has a foreword uh, by New York best-selling Times author, uh, Saved by the Light, Daniel Brinkley. You yes. get yourself a copy on Amazon. I kind of wanted to uh, connect your new book about the afterlife near death to your uh, research of the ancient Egyptian book of um, which you call a manual, a guide of spiritual instruction and traveler's key to enlightenment. Yeah, well, in other words, all, in fact, all of the all of the great religions have something equivalent to the funerary texts of Egypt. In other words, the passage through the duat, through the, the limbo region that, that is after death. The Tibetan Book of the Dead is sort of related to that. The Christian um, becomes degenerate with all of their sex-repressed visions of hell and punishment and so on. 
Oh, yeah, the, one of the interesting things about the dead saints is they've been to a realm where, I mean, everyone has to pay their dues, but there's really no eternal fire, which I find a bit distressing. I hate to think that <laughs> Dick Cheney will get a free pass. But um, but anyway, the dead saints, effective without being too specific about it, corroborates and provides proof positive that the, the ancients knew what they were talking about when they were creating all of these extraordinary uh, funerary texts. In other words, they were not, as the quack academics have it, busy trying to fudge their way around uncomfortable facts of their death. They knew about the whole process of dying and the consequences of it, and the reincarnation fits into it. Um, David talks about that to a certain extent. That's not his main fo- focus. But all of these things that we're taught to sneer at and that, that the debunkers sneer at, I mean, you have my, my satiric sense of, of taking apart the deniers and the people who are trying to prove to them, to us, that their own sense of meaningless is, is is the truth. Very interesting to read the Dead Saints Chronicles and then to look into, and David provides you know plenty of references and so on, into the great, into the funerary texts of Egypt and, and some of the other religions. I'm, of course, most familiar with the Egyptian, but the others are maybe not as, well, as Tibetan is as elaborated, but the others maybe not, or you'd have to hunt around for them. So that's why one of the reasons that attracted me from the get-go. I mean, David was a good friend. But if if he'd been working on a cookbook or something like that, I wouldn't have taken a couple of years off my own life in order to help him edit this. So, and in fact, I'm I'm really, I'm very happy with the result because I had a, well, a certain philosophical perspective and very definitely a certain literary polish to it that otherwise wouldn't have had. So that's the Dead Saints. And that's why it is important. And it fits into my own work and the work of anyone who's studying esoteric studies. So it seems the general understanding among academics is that the Egyptians were afraid of death and therefore all the stuff they made was a product of their own superstition. The truth is, the more you research this stuff, you come to find that it's actually the contrary. So speaking of the quackademics, what would you believe it would take for some sort of paradigm shift or drastic change to occur in which the history books are rewritten? Well, I don't know how close it is. We're closing in on it. Actually, good. I'm glad you brought that up because I contributed an afterword to David's book and it actually had to tone it down a little bit because as I wrote it, it wouldn't fit in. I'll somewhere along the line publish a full one. This is somewhat abbreviated. I mean, just about everybody who's a little bit literate knows the famous quote from Victor Hugo uh, who said, there's one thing stronger than all the armies in the world, and that is an idea whose time had come. Well, this presupposes that the idea whose time had come is a good idea. This is not true. Hitler was an idea whose time had come, definitely not a good idea. But the other thing that maybe he knew it, but he didn't express it, is that the second strongest thing in the world is an idea whose time has not yet gone. And since, by definition, um, all the armies in the world, be they scientific or religious or even artistic or philosophical or whatever, all of those armies, and they are armies, have their forces marshaled against the idea whose time is trying to come. There's a real battle going on. And so I'm, I'm always looking personally for kinds of things that will lead enough people to force the paradigm shift. It's not going to happen by itself. But the more people who get involved in these kinds of things, who see Egypt, I mean, only a handful can see Egypt every year. I mean, one, I can only handle so many people. Two, it's expensive and um not for what it is, but it, it, you know, not, not that many people can get to Egypt. The books are relatively accessible. Actually, this is why I think David's book is so important because it's it's accessible almost to anyone. And because David was you know, a real practicing mystic himself, and he's writing this as he's 
dying. It has a, it has both, it has an emotional quality and an authority. That's what I'm looking for. It has an authority that none of the other, and a comprehensiveness that none of the other books on the subject do have. So that's, that's how it fits in. And now that the book is out, John, what's next? Can you tell us about your latest hobby horse, the uh, yeah. Five Cowboys of Apocalypse 2.0? Uh, this has to do with this idea of the second strongest thing in the world, because this is, this is what I call the Church of Progress, which is based upon reason, but it's not. It's a bogus religion in its own right. It's basically the religion of the emotionally defective, spiritually dyslexic, and philosophically depraved. They call it reason. They say it's based upon science, which is itself based upon reason. It's not based upon reason at all. It's based upon the rationalization of their own inner emptiness. And the Jesuits of this particular malignant church are science, education, and the press. Science invents the dogma or comes out with the dogma. Education drives it into our brainwashes us it into our heads and the media try to make it palatable in one way or another. The enforcers of this are, everyone's familiar with the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, uh, which is a study in its own right. Uh, what are they? Um, war, famine, pestilence, and death. Very strange. Nobody that I've ever read has really looked into why are those the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse? The only one that's human, the result of human activity, as a general rule, is war. In theory, we don't need war. Famine happens. Um, pestilence, the plague, happens. Death, of course, happens to us all. So it's a peculiar choice. But the five the five cowboys of, I mean, and nobody thinks those are the good guys, war, pestilence, famine, and death. But the five cowboys, everybody are portrayed themselves as the good guys. They're all played by John Wayne wearing a white Stetson and riding on a, on a, you know, on a silver horse. But really, they're not. They're the five, the five cowboys are capitalism, patriotism, democracy, technology, and entertainment. Briefly, in a sentence or two, because we're running out of time, I think. Capitalism is based upon the philosophy or the principle, everything for me, nothing for you. Patriotism is based upon the principle, everything for us, nothing for them. Bumper sticker says, God bless America. The reverse sticky side, if you look on it, says an everyone else. Democracy is the idea is based upon the principle that the dishwashers elect the chef and not only do they elect them, they tell them how to cook. I mean, it doesn't work that way at all. Of course, what we have is not even in principle democracy. Actually, it can work in a tribal situation where everybody is familiar with each other and you know who to elect. You know, some of the Native American clans and tribes were small enough, so they elected a chief, as it were, often a woman, because they, they knew what to expect. The stuff that's going on now, to begin with, you have to be psychotic to, in some way or another, to put yourself up for office. I mean, who but a madman would want to go through the expense, the stress, ass-kissing, the grubbling, the pandering for money that switches a principle depending upon the audience. You have to be, in order to get power, these people are by definition unfit to wield power. Every once in a while you get a kind of a Don Quixote character. Sanders is a bit like that, who if ever he did get in, wouldn't be able to do anything anyway because the forces of the idea that is, whose time has not yet gone line up on both sides against him. The best thing that ever could happen to him is that he gets nowhere with his campaign, which seems to be what's what's happening now. That's democracy. Technology is a mixed bag. You know, for every advance in medicine, good, three cheers. There's big pharma trying to make profit out of it. You know, if you can build a hydrogen bomb, build it. You know, if you can build a, do a bobblehead doll, build it. 
But the underlying evil part of technology is that it fundamentally, it deprives the average human being from making a living out of his or her own creativity. If you're living a life that has no creativity involved in it, you, you have a dead life. And the proof of this actually, what television, watch what the ads are, apart from the Viagra ads, which is sort of a farce. I mean, here are these guys 40 years old and they need Viagra doing something wrong. The people who invent the technology, that's creative. Technology has its, has its beneficial and it's, and it's deeply evil aspects to it. I mean, who in their right mind would want to invent the cluster bomb or the predator drone, nerve gas? I mean, the people who are doing these things are monsters, all for a patriotic cause, of course, because we don't invent it. The lunatics on the other side will be doing it. Even beyond that is that the average human being is deprived of the possibility of making a living out of his or her own creativity. This is diabolical. And this is this explains why a lot of the horrible garbage that's going on is going on because you have this schmuck talking about bringing the jobs back. Has he ever thought to look at what those jobs are? Yeah, they're better than being on food stamps and living on the street. Those jobs are terrible jobs. Trump certainly has never worked in a factory, and most of these other schmucks haven't either to be able to get through. But do we have to have hydrogen bombs in order to have dentistry? No, not really, at least not in theory. It could be selective technology in which things that are actually life-improving are done. We don't need bobblehead dolls either, as well as hydrogen bombs and striped toothpaste and all the rest of the garbage that now poisons the oceans and the seas and the air and so on. So that's technology. That's a that's a, a mixed bag. But of course, it's, you know, these phony TED talks that they have. TED stands for the, the technology, entertainment, and design. I don't know what they mean by design. But entertainment, on their level, entertainment is not art. Actually, we tend to, I mean, the, the, the Church of Progress conflates the two. So New York Times a section on the arts is called arts and entertainment. They're actually at opposite ends, like progress and civilization. Entertainment, the John one-liner for entertainment, entertainment is what you do to kill time before it kills you. It has little or no value. It's negative. I mean, it, it, it's it's destructive. You watch enough garbage and violence and, and all the kind of crap that, that, that passes as entertainment. This has to, at some level or another, have an effect upon you. It can't not have an effect. So anyway, those are the five cowboys, but I will at some point or another develop those to a much greater extent. So distant from us modern humans, it seems the ancients were not only master artisans, but magnificent scientists, philosophers, and engineers. Could you speak a bit about how there was no separation of disciplines to the ancients. No, this is true. Correct. I mean, there was the sacred science, or let's say Egypt, fused religion, art, philosophy, and science into one inextricable whole. In other words, there was no art that wasn't religious. There was no religion that wasn't scientific. There was no science that wasn't spiritual. It was all one thing. Yeah, I mean, nowadays it's very rare that anybody who's religious can talk to anyone who's scientific or calls himself scientific or calls themselves religious. Yeah, it was all of a piece. And you get the sense of it when you're there. I mean, the, the, the quotes by the academics of, you know, how terrible it must have been in the old days. There's a Bertrand Russell quote where he says that people were slaves and the kings were tyrants. He didn't know that. It's exactly the opposite. The people are slaves and the king is tyrant. They wouldn't, the civilization wouldn't be go on recognizably the same, although on a 
on a degenerating scale for 3,500 years. Can't be. Herodotus, 6th century BC, was a very patriotic Greek and not at all being paid by the Egyptian Chamber of Commerce. And Egypt is already deep in its decline, says the Egyptians are the happiest, healthiest, and most religious of peoples when you have a real civilization. And only when you have all of these factors functioning can you have a real civilization. And we don't seem to have had any of those in the last couple of thousand years, which brings to the other question of the Kali Yuga. And that's actually in Jocelyn Godwin's book, Atlantis and the Cycles of Time, where he's talking about the Kali Yuga. We live in an age, everybody, a lot of my friends argue about where we stand in the Kali Yuga, the Iron Age, the Dark Age, as it were. The, the Hindus are the, probably the best known for their, their talk about, I forget the, the Sanskrit names, but there's the Golden Age. Plato talks about it too. Golden Age, the Silver Age, Bronze Age, and the Iron or the Dark Age. And we're somewhere in that Dark Age, maybe turning the corner, maybe not. We all argue about it. To use an analogy, the Yugas are like sort of analogous, roughly, to the seasons, let's say, and in which what's easy to do in June, if you want to raise roses, it's a simple thing in June. If you want to raise roses in January, you need a lot of special equipment and special care and so on to raise roses. So we're somewhere in there now. We have our quite brilliant technology that's mostly, or no, at best, some of it's good. Some of it really is a force for good medicine. But most of it, or the vast majority of it, is either useless, is unnecessary, certainly, and much of it is downright evil. Our, our five cowboys come into play there. Now, John, you referenced the Yuga cycles, which brings uh, actually Walter Cruttenden to mind in his work. He yeah. has uh, CPOC coming up soon. Are, That's right. are you attending this year? No, I'm, I'll be one of the speakers, yeah. And, oh, yeah, go ahead. And, and John, how can, how can people reach you? You mentioned also getting the book direct from you and find more information on your trips. Where should they go? On my website, jawest.net, Magical Egypt Tours is the banner at the top for the trips but anyway yeah you can get in touch with me and my my email is yeah, my initial j-a-w swinks s-p-h-i-n-x at aol.com so that's that oh and one other thing i wanted to bring up important in fact well you know me you've been on on when was it three years ago on a trip was it three years i think yeah yeah well i wasn't on to on to this yet but well you know i'm pretty spry for my age and uh <clears throat> actually i'll be turning i'll be in egypt um now for my birthday, which is July 9th, uh, when I turn 84. And uh, uh, what I'll be, one of the things I want to do, I mean, I do it all the time as a matter of course, but I schedule this for my birthday, is to get, you know, to climb the, it's about a 14-story climb to the King's Chamber and also go down into the pit. I don't know if you did this on, on our trip, but I, I, don't know, I don't always do it. I don't have to do it anymore, but it's about the same down, 14 stories down to the pit. And one of the, that's a sort of a personal test. But yeah, not too many guys 84 years old can do this. This is what I wanted to ask you before we go, John, just for our yes. audience who is considering going on a trip with you. How much longer, those that don't know, will you be doing these Egypt trips? What's the, what's the uh, trigger that's going to prevent that from moving forward? Well, a couple of triggers, actually. One is that as long as I have a kind of a, a deadline for myself is when I can't get up and down the Great Pyramid with relative ease, that's the time to put, put the trips to rest. The other is that I'm, that's, I'm doing fine. As I said, I, I get up there still. Um, professional dancers get up there 
easier than I do, but you know, I'm, I get up there as well as most of the people 20 and 30 years younger. So that, I'm okay. But various media things, there's always irons in the fire. If any of these things really come together, I might have to suspend the trips. I mean, I, I, I just don't have a timeline for how long I'll do it. I might, it's not, not impossible that I have to suspend them for a substantial amount of time, maybe even a couple of years, maybe. And the other is that the Middle East, you know, who knows what's going to be happening there. It could implode upon itself. I mean, you watch this stuff going on now. It's practically a daily basis. There's no place that's safe, including your hometown, no matter where the hell you live. I mean, who would have thought they're going to hit a gay bar in Orlando, for God's sake? All this other stuff that's going on every day. I this- feel, you know what, though? I feel safer in Egypt than I do in, in some, you know, places where I grew up in Boston or even here where I live now that's in L.A. Right. Yeah, you do. You absolutely do. I mean, it's as secure as you can get. It's that secure, but nothing is 100% secure. And here, this is maybe the most dangerous country on earth next to Pakistan. <laughs> it's close to 100 people are, are gun deaths a day in America. And that not all of that is gang warfare. I mean, a lot of it is domestic stuff and all of that. So, yeah, I mean, it's just, this is a very dangerous country. And now there's this Turkish thing that happened just the other day. We were, for our trip, we were thinking going Turkish air because, in fact, they're a really nice, air, relatively, a really nice airline. And, you know, now they're in chaos there, of course, and they're going to continue to be in chaos for a while now. So who the hell knows what's happening? My guess is that Egypt, if the whole thing implodes, Egypt will be one of the last to implode. Egypt and maybe Morocco will hang on, maybe even through stuff. John, it has been an honor and a privilege and a pleasure to have you on our our debut edition of the new podcast. I want to thank you for being a guest with us. Thank you. It was my pleasure being on, and we will be, I'm sure, in touch and probably see you you at CPAC. I'll be there. John... (laughs) I sincerely do appreciate you taking the time. It really means a lot to me. You know, as as you know, I've been to these trips with you. And man, thank you. It's it's very cool to have you as well, our first guest. Thank as you. we drop it. Thank <laughs> you. And good luck with the series. Thanks, John. Have Take care. Week. This episode is brought to you by AncientEgyptMysterySchools.com. Immerse yourself in the hidden teachings of the ancient mystery traditions. For thousands of years, initiates have examined the meanings of sacred texts said to hold the secret path towards ascension. But how can we decipher these often enigmatic phrases and symbols? Join the line of ascended masters on a quest for deeper truths of our universe. Follow along as we trace the powerful evolution of humankind's most illuminating secrets. Begin to embark on your journey today and discover your divine rite of passage at ancientegyptmysteryschools.com.